If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com slash greendreamer. You know, we sort of are all pretty familiar with the concept of the biosphere at this point, which is the sort of living layer of the earth and the thinking about the earth as a living whole. And the noosphere is sort of the thinking layer of the earth that grows in and from that biosphere. So it includes human thought and human activity, but is also much more than that. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Micah Rader, an independent scholar and freelance editor, indexer and writing coach living in North Carolina. Her research and writing address environmental themes ranging from forest conservation in northern Guatemala to extraterrestrial futures. She begins here by offering an introduction to the Maya Biosphere Reserve, as well as some of the broader social inequalities and conflicts of the region that can help us to contextualize the rest of this conversation. The biosphere reserves are a UNESCO kind of project that are set down around the world. And it's this model that mixes some strict conservation area, usually in the form of national parks, with some mixed use area where local populations or communities can do kind of sustainable extraction activities, and then a buffer zone. So the Maya Biosphere Reserve lies right on the northern part of Guatemala, right up against the border with Mexico and Belize, and it covers about a sixth of the land of all of Guatemala. So 
it's really quite massive in comparison to this very small country, but it's also part of this northern region that has much lower population density and historically has had much lower population density than the highlands, which are farther south in the country. So that's sort of the the official designation. You've got some national parks, you have some forest concessions run by communities, and then a buffer zone with some sustainable agriculture programs, at least in theory, not so much in practice. But it was really, it was laid down in 1990, which was at the tail end of the Guatemalan Civil War. And the Civil War was a brutal and genocidal 36-year-long campaign against, primarily against indigenous peoples. And much of the population from those highlands fled north into the lowlands and into the forests during the war. And as they moved and were encouraged to move often by a government that also sort of opened up roads and, and frontier programs, offering land to landless people, the forest was decimated very, very quickly. So about half of the forest of this northern region was lost in under a couple of decades. And so in 1990, this Maya Biosphere Reserve was sort of stamped down on top of these dynamics to try to stop this deforestation and this migration frontier. But of course, drawing new lines on a map does not really solve all of the underlying social and political dynamics. And so the reserve has really been beset by a whole lot of really intense social conflict. There are parts of it, you know, there are some really successful community managed forest concessions that have done a lot of work to protect forest cover, that have managed to sort of find ways to provide income for community members, that have allowed those villages to get more access to things like health care and clean water and education services. And it's not perfect, but it's certainly, you know, things are kind of moving along in some of these places. And then there are other places in particular in some of the national parks where people were already settled in these national parks before the lines were drawn in some cases, and people continued to come and settle in the national parks after those lines were drawn, which are supposed to be free of people. So the conflict around who can live there, you know, what to do about all of these people who have been displaced, whether by the war or by poverty or some combination of these things into these parks is a real challenge for conservationists and Making this more complicated now, more recently, has been the growth of the region as a key corridor for drug and human trafficking by large narco-trafficking organizations. So again, sort of taking advantage of lack of state presence in those Western national parks and the advantage of being able to kind of hide their activities behind peasant activities or behind cattle ranching. There's increasingly some really dangerous presence throughout the Maya Biosphere Reserve, and it's often difficult or impossible to know who is a poor displaced person, who is a poor displaced person who has been bought off by a drug trafficker, and who is a drug trafficker, you know, and who's hiding. And so there's just a lot of fear and suspicion and confusion and this whole mix of sort of legal and illegal activity 
throughout the reserve that makes it incredibly difficult to untangle or to try to decide on conservation strategies. Mm. And as will likely be a major theme of this conversation, there's a lot of complexity in this picture of the Maya Biosphere Reserve that you just offered us a glimpse into. Certainly a lot of complicated dynamics and relationships at play. And to further this nuance as examples of the trouble with conservation, you've shared that there's a lot of critiques about the neoliberalism of NGO-driven conservation in particular, about these kinds of conservation models that prioritize economic logics, that shift responsibility from the state onto NGOs, and then also critiques about militarism of conservation, end quote. On the show, we've also explored the general concerns that many local and indigenous communities have with big conservation, specifically its general approach to see nature and society as separate, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, this approach to protect Mm -hmm. the quote unquote wild while leading often to erasure or even violence against local communities. Particularly with the Maya Biosphere Reserve, though, what are some of the concerns you've seen raised about the ways that conservation has been carried out? And how have you or the local conservationists you've engaged with contended with the nuances of the relationship between militarism, criminality, and conservation? Yeah, thank you. I mean, for for a long time and for the first, I would say, 15, 20 years of the reserve, there was a lot of critique coming out, particularly about the neoliberal aspects. You know, when the reserve was created, the Guatemalan government created basically their their equivalent of the Park Service at the same time. And they were sort of co-created together, but immediately kind of subcontracted to these massive international NGOs to actually manage the reserve, to actually make plans and do the work on the ground. So right from the very start, you know, the Maya Biosphere Reserve, and even just the fact that it's a UNESCO model, right? It is this international presence, this very US dominated kind of presence and conservation model coming into Guatemala and trying to import these market-based logics, these ideas that just, that don't fit, that that reproduce or make worse inequalities. So there was a lot of critique about that. And then more recently, in the face of the growing organized crime and drug trafficking, conservationists have been uneasily aligning with the Guatemalan military as a way of trying to protect themselves, trying to protect the parks against these really quite violent actors, right? Things like kidnappings and murders of conservationists, both institutional conservationists and people, you know, in some of these community concessions have been targeted for this kind of violence. And so a lot of conservationists have started turning to the military, despite the fact that the military, of course, carried out this genocidal campaign in very recent memory. And the continued impunity for for those crimes really haunts this alliance. So in terms of how conservationists grapple with that, I think it's so complicated because, you know, I've been saying conservationists as if this is a unified group so far, but it's really a whole mess of institutions. There are so many in each institution has its own philosophy and practice. And then within that, there are all these different individuals, you know, most of whom are Guatemalan, some of whom are indigenous, some of whom are from the region, some of whom are from other parts of the country. 
you sometimes have foreigners kind of flying in and doing little projects and leaving. There are a few U.S.-based people who have sort of stepped into prominent roles with some of these organizations, but there's also this, so I just am trying to draw attention to the diverse field of people actually grappling with these problems, which of course shapes an incredibly diverse set of responses. But most of all, I would say that the people that I spent the most time with were really worried. They were really uncomfortable with aligning with the military, you know, and some people shared stories, their own stories from the war or from the late years of the war or even from after it of being kind of persecuted by the military or afraid for their lives or afraid for their families' lives. And now they find themselves aligning with this military that is was responsible for that same violence. And they feel, I would say it's the the feeling that most people shared with me was this feeling of being backed into a corner, right? Of being like, we we don't know what to do. We're here. We're trying to find some way to keep this forest alive or as much of it present as possible. We're trying not to do harm to the people who live here. And we're also trying to not be killed or not subject ourselves or the people we care about to violence and not subject the landscape to violence. And they turn to the military, it it seemed to me out of a kind of desperation. So in we, you know, when I in my book, I am both very critical of that. You know, I I but I also am just, you know, I try to unpack and uncover what has led people who really deeply dislike and distrust the military to align themselves with it. And there's just such a broad, widespread fear and a sense that you can't trust anybody, even the people you know, that sort of pervades a lot of the work in the reserve. That's, you know, it's it's very heartbreaking, honestly. And I do my best to kind of sit with those contradictions and let my let my readers and let listeners kind of sit with those contradictions. What does it mean to try to make some positive change in the world when you feel backed into the corner? And it's a it's an incredibly difficult place to do work. Yeah, I think oftentimes especially from the outside it can be easy to portray things as simply good or bad or ethical and unethical and the like. But when you're inside of it, you're forced to sit with the nuances, with the varied layers, with the different dynamics, all the challenges, sometimes having to compromise this idea of purity, whatever that means. And so for Mm -hmm. those really wanting to Mm -hmm. get the full picture, I think it calls on us to seek to understand over, you know, making generalized judgments about what is going on. And a big part of your focus has been on what you name the ecology of knowledges. And to best Mm -hmm. understand what you mean by this, I think it's helpful to first introduce the concept of the noosphere, which has been a big inspiration of yours. It was certainly the first time that I had learned Mm -hmm. about it, and it really resonated. So I would love to explore this with you. What does it mean to think about the thinking layer of the earth 
And how did it invite mm, you to expand yes. your perspectives on what knowledge even means or who gets to define it? Yeah, I was similarly, I had never heard of this concept until I was working on the book and doing some reading. And I came across it in some work by Lynn Margulis. And it blew my mind. And so it's really the, this concept, you know, we sort of are all pretty familiar with the concept of the biosphere at this point, which is the sort of living layer of the earth and the thinking about the earth as a living whole. And the noosphere is sort of the thinking layer of the earth that grows in and from that biosphere. So it includes human thought and human activity but is also much more than that. It also includes the rest of the living earth along with us. And it includes the non-living earth, right? Because the biosphere is itself intertwined with and growing in and from the mineral earth and the geological earth. So it's really, it's the concept is very literally the mind of the earth. So I was really excited about this idea because I had been thinking about, I have training in ecology, I have training in cultural anthropology, I have training in what's called science and technology studies, so sort of thinking about the social and political aspects of science and technology. And to me, this idea of noosphere resonated across all of these ways of thinking and reading, right? It was this way of connecting human ways of thinking with more than human ways of thinking and ways of recognizing the wisdom of the whole living earth and ourselves as a part of that. And so within that, that concept of the noosphere, I actually carved out this, this smaller concept of the noscape because we can't access that global mind, right? And to use a sort of imperfect metaphor, a neuron does not have access to the thoughts of the whole brain. Right. And so, as sort of a smaller piece of this larger emergent whole, we can sort of conceptualize that this might exist, but we don't really have access to what the earth is thinking, per se. Right. Or, you know, what the earth's mind might even be like. But we do have, because of our peculiar qualities as a species, as a part of this living, thinking whole, we have access to small pieces of what what knowledge might look like, right? And what kinds of knowledge and what kinds of practices are making up this larger whole. And so the noscape is kind of like the scape is like a landscape where what the landscape is, is defined in relation to where you are situated and the direction that you are looking. So it's really thinking about how can we think about us are smaller situated pieces of this larger whole. So this concept brought me to the ecology of knowledges, or really it was the other way around. But in this conversation, it brings me to the ecology of knowledges as a way of thinking about how our practices of knowing are built with the rest of the living earth, right? They're not built, you know, this is not some Cartesian mind-body duality where knowing happens abstractly in our human brains. But knowing is really an activity that we undertake with the world around us. And that is as true for science and the ways that it 
arranges the world in very particular and careful and structured and controlled ways in, to, in order to produce certain kinds of knowledges as it is for another thing that I trace in the book, which is just embodied love of wild places, right? Which is a way of knowing what it means to be a part of this larger no escape or no sphere just by feeling yourself in a forest and being in this embodied creature with all of these senses, paying attention to what's around you and knowing that what is around you is also paying attention to you. So the ecology of knowledge is, is a way of sort of bringing these multiple ways of knowing, including science, including this very paranoid trying to read, you know, where is the danger going to come from? Who's who? And bringing this love of wild places, bringing all of these different ways of knowing and being in the world together in an ecological framework where these things exist in relation to each other very materially as well as conceptually and, mm -hmm. and are embedded in, in the living earth. There's so much you just said there that I really want to dive deeper into. And the key part that stood out for me is the idea that the noosphere and the noascape both decenter human supremacy and human centrality. And I think it really humbles mm -hmm. the role of the human and recognizes us as being enmeshed within a more than human landscape and world. And to narrow in on the diverse knowledges for humans, though, in the book, you talk about three ways of knowing, technoscience, paranoia, and love, which you just touched on. And this mm -hmm. is a really interesting dynamic, especially the relationship between technoscience and paranoia that I would love mm -hmm. for us to explore. Because when thinking about this idea of credibility, I think our dominant culture has a tendency to seek objective facts, objective data, objective information. But that leads us to forget that sometimes, or in many cases, objectivity often needs to be challenged and unraveled if we really want to arrive as close to the truth as possible. So what do you mean when you talk about paranoid knowledge as what has helped people to better understand scientific knowledge? And what should this tell us about the idea of objectivity through things like official data and reports and the like? Yeah, paranoia was so present throughout my fieldwork. And I should clarify that when I use the word paranoia, I'm not talking about like an individual pathology or, you know, a psychological sort of something embedded in a, in a single person's mind, but really this broad sort of affect and way of understanding and interacting with the world that people had and have that grows from these histories of the war, you know, in which the sort of directionality and cause of violence and who was aligned with whom was deliberately undermined by by the strategies of the military right it the war was fed on uncertainty about where violence might come from or who was responsible and similarly narco trafficker violence and organized criminal violence in the reserve thrives on this kind of uncertainty this this sort of back and forth movement between staying hidden and staying clandestine and then these really spectacular, horrific moments of violence. So there was, you know, one event while I was in the middle of my field work where 26 farm workers were beheaded just outside the reserve. And, a, you know, like a message was written in their blood as a warning to the farm's owner from a drug cartel. 
but just the the incredible yeah the the spectacularity of that violence and the way that it was totally unpredictable and you never quite know who to trust just led people to always sort of have this double filter in every interaction in every interaction with other people and in every interaction with data and scientific knowledge about the reserve there would be these questions about well who made this knowledge and what are they hiding and what are their connections and what can we put in our reports safely and what can't we put in our reports safely and so i was able to see by being inside some of these conservation institutions that what pops out as the cleanest and most beautiful objective data is really data that has been very, very carefully crafted through this paranoid lens, right? Able to navigate what is too dangerous to report in terms of what we've seen happening in the reserve that might result in violence against us in our institution or people in these communities. But what can we report that's enough that we can take some conservation action based on what we're seeing, right? And how do they, you know, so these institutions that were producing knowledge about the reserve, and primarily it was this one computer lab, CEMEC, the Center for Ecological Monitoring of the Reserve that's part of the Park Service and also partly run by an NGO. And they were so skilled at walking this fine line Right. And so I was just able to very clearly see through this detailed fieldwork of how embedded paranoia was in objective scientific knowledge and how the best knowledge about the reserve, you know, that lab's reports were so widely used, they were so widely praised. And nobody praises the Guatemalan state or the data they produce, you know, so for this to come towards a Guatemalan state institution was really exceptional. And what they were really exceptional at doing was wending their way through this dangerous landscape and reporting just enough to show that they were really attending to the dynamics, the complicated dynamics of the reserve, but just sidestepping what might be too dangerous to put down in a report. So those I've, you know, I think I described technoscience and paranoia as in a symbiotic relationship to sort of go back to those ecological words, you know, they really, they rely on each other in this place. Mm-hmm. They, they grow together and in the same way that it shapes the, the way that reports are produced and people also read them through that same lens, you know. So one example was a map of reported crimes in one of those Western national parks, and there just weren't very many crimes reported. And so if this were, you know, quote unquote, objective data, or, you know, this sort of view from nowhere, that is the imaginary of objective data, then that would mean that that park was actually doing pretty well. But the people viewing the report sort of had this paranoid knowledge that that was one of the places that was most dangerous, where all the rumors were circulating about who was where and what was happening, right? It was a very rumor thick place. So they looked at that map and said, well, that either means that the people walking the patrols are being paid off and they're not reporting, or maybe they're not even walking their patrols, or maybe, you know, it's sort of like 
the paranoia was also a way of reading the objective data as well as producing it. So they really just, this idea that objectivity sits alone in the world as its own way of making knowledge was just not the case. It's just not the case. Yeah. It certainly seems like it really requires place-based knowledge of the relationships, Mm -hmm. dynamics, and broader social context for people to best calibrate their lenses of paranoia and to be able to read between the lines. I think that's a lesson that Mm -hmm. we can all learn from is that oftentimes we have to dig deeper and peel back the curtains to better understand the quote-unquote objective information that we receive. And I also want to explore the other way of knowing a little more, which is love, because this isn't typically valued as something that could help us deepen and further our understanding and knowledge of the world, let alone even seen as a form of knowledge itself. So I wonder how you personally came to recognize love as a way of knowing worthy of specifying in the book. Thank you. That's a really wonderful question, in part because the book was built from my dissertation and the dissertation did not have love in it. Mm. You know, so the first time I wrote it, I was so focused on the violence and I was so focused on the fear, you know, that it was just techno science and paranoia. And then when I started revising it and going back and thinking about the work, there was this piece of fieldwork that I had done that I couldn't figure out how to fit in my dissertation. And it was this part where I had gone and followed wildlife veterinarians and biologists around for a month or two. And, you know, they would go and tell these wild stories about danger. And, you know, those those dynamics were certainly there, but it just didn't fit. And when I was working on the book, I came to realize that it didn't fit because most of what they were talking about was actually just was love was this this incredible transformative experience of being in the forest of being present with wildlife of being present with the trees and the plants and the rivers and the swamps and the lack of water and that when people would tell these incredible stories at these wildlife camps, you know, yeah, there'd be these stories of, you know, the time I got kidnapped, and then it would be the story of the time I encountered a herd of wild peccaries, which are like wild, little wild pigs, uh, little wild boars. And, and these stories would be all mixed up together as part of this experience of the landscape and told with this joy. And so I, I sort of homed in on this, this missing piece of well, if everything is so scary and terrible, and if the techno science is just dry and sort of evacuated of all of this emotion, what is it that keeps people so engaged in this work in the region? And and that's where I sort of came to this recognition of this embodied love. And, you know, I certainly felt it myself. Every time I would go out into the forest, even even just out into like villages surrounded by forest, you know, it's so loud. I think that we, and by we, I mean, you know, Euro-Americans, North Americans tend to privilege vision and imagine tropical landscapes as these very dense sort of visual spaces. But really, it's like the sound that I would find so overwhelming in these places they're just, they're such noisy, alive places. 
And everybody had stories about some kind of personal transformation once they spent time in the forest. And the transformation would usually involve like a growing love for the place and a growing commitment to fight for it. And I certainly felt that myself, you know, the more time I spent down there, the more I was also affected by stories of like, oh, you know, how much fire was there this year and the stories of the loss. And so I I came to recognize the love as an important part of what was keeping people involved in the work. And much the way that I talked about technoscience and paranoia as being kind of symbiotic and feeding off each other, I I think of the, the technoscience as kind of parasitic on the love. And the the translation of those embodied experiences in the field into these reports and animal counts, and this is how many scarlet macaw chicks survived this year, and here's the graph about it, right? It evacuates all the power out of that experience, but also relies on the power of that experience to exist. So it just, it sort of feeds that and... So I, you know, part of the argument I end up making, you know, I don't, I try not to be prescriptive. It is, A, I don't think there are easy solutions for this place. And B, it's definitely not my place as a white woman who's not from Guatemala to come down and tell people how to manage their landscape. That's not, you know, my goal, my place and nothing like that. But one of the few things that I sort of more directly would like to offer to conservation in this place and elsewhere is just to make space for that love and to recognize it and to build it because I think that's the thing that's keeping the project going. And it's just institutions don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to build from it. They only know how to sort of push it out to the sides. And I think that that's that's part of the major problem with with how strategies get decided is that love's not allowed a place in the room. And in terms of moving away from being prescriptive, especially when we're trying to pinpoint and understand different issues or crises, I think a lot of us have the tendency to simplify and to reduce and to generalize because when we do, it can make the problems feel more comprehensible and therefore the solutions feel more straightforward and less daunting. But you warn against totalizing narratives, whether it's seeing the state as one thing or seeing conservation as one thing or otherwise. So what concerns do you have with totalizing narratives? And what led you to emphasize our need to really see the nuance and complex relations between different things at play? Yeah, I mean, I think totalizing narratives are just an incredible source of violence in this world. I just don't think that that's that's the earth that we live on. You know, I think that these, whatever it is, whether it's there's, you know, the state is one thing or nature is one thing or people are one thing, whatever it is, it's always going to miss some nuance. And I know, you know, cultural anthropology, especially environmental anthropology, which is, you know, the part I was trained in, sometimes gets criticized for this, right? Like that we're not offering solutions. But I I think my work offers a different way of thinking as opposed to a solution, because I think the rush to solutions is part of the problem, right? The, this idea that we need to be 
and again, the we here is is a very particular we, like stepping in and saving and acting and acting now with this kind of urgency to intervene now, right? And it's so present in climate narratives, but that that sense of urgency can stop us from taking the time to reflect on, well, what uh, options do we have? You know, what other opportunities do we have to slow down and build something different? Like, yes, this problem is pressing, but if we're always acting out of this sense of urgency and fear, right, then we're always going to be missing part of the picture and ending up causing new problems, right? Whether that's displacing violence from one group of people onto another or displacing violence from the landscape onto people, it's always going to just push the problem into some new form as opposed to actually stopping and thinking about what's what are the roots of the problem and what how do we act if there is no one right answer, right? Where, where does that leave us? How do we build new political and environmental worlds that are not based on one right path? And I think that's the question that I sit with and that I encourage others to sit with is not to try to find the answer, but really take some time to think about what does it mean to act without a single answer. Yeah. And maybe this will take us a little deeper there, but you've shared that since publishing the book in 2020, you continue to practice slow scholarship and are enjoying pursuing <laughs> ideas and curiosity outside of institutional frameworks. This would be applying that critical lens of looking at the production of knowledge, which we've been talking about, but towards the dominant educational and research institutions. So I'd be curious to hear you elaborate on what sorts of limitations or influences you've seen coming from producing knowledge through institutional frameworks and with those particular publication pressures and timelines, and what freeing yourself from those pressures may allow you and other independent and slow scholars to do. Yeah, thank you. I love talking about this because I was in one sense so incredibly fortunate to get a tenure track job when I completed my PhD. They're really hard to get. The job market is terrible. And so I felt incredibly fortunate and I was incredibly fortunate to land that job. But five years in, I similarly felt that it had, you know, like was preying in a parasitic way on my love of what I did and was taking all the joy out of it for me and was, you know, just this, yeah, this source of pressure to just produce as quickly as possible in order to meet these institutional frameworks. And so I, I left that job, I guess it's, been th almost three years now. Yeah, I guess it's about the end of the semester time. So it's been three years and started supporting myself as an editor and writing coach primarily for other academics. And just working and thinking at my own pace, because I know that I will never stop working and thinking and writing and reading and being a part of this living earth and its mind in, in ways I'm, I'm so deeply committed to knowledge and its potential to change the world that I will never stop doing that. 
but it has slowed down because I, you know, in part because I don't have institutional support and that's the flip side. So the idea of slow scholarship came about as a way of, it was a proposal for sort of feminist methods to resist these, these temporal pressures to always speed up in, in the institutions of academia and was also really criticized because, of course, the only people who really have the power to slow down and retain their jobs in academia are really the most senior scholars who have tenure, who have a lot of job security. And, you know, all the junior scholars still have to, they have to produce in order to keep their jobs or to find a job. And so as an independent scholar, I you know, it's sort of, I a, have the freedom to do slow scholarship, and I'm also kind of forced into slow scholarship because I just can't afford to dedicate all of my time to it. But I've ended up finding that to be, you know, I was, I was not that happy about it when I left, but, you know, a few years in, I find it so rewarding. You know, my, my reading practices are so much less extractive, which is delightful. You know, I just get to read I just get to follow my curiosity instead of always prioritizing what's going to help me get another line on my CV. And it's it's been really freeing and wonderful, but of course comes with with the the lack of institutional support, you know, I don't have grant funding, I don't have research funds, I don't have these other things that enable that work and so on the other on the other hand I am forcibly slowed down as I sort of make my way into making knowledge in a, in a different way. And finally, in terms of some guidance for our path forward, you've shared, instead of working ourselves through strange loops of being both part and whole, of thinking globally and acting locally, I suggest instead that we think and act no escapically, attending to the non-hierarchical relation between scales, including the global and the local, as they emerge from multiple situated encounters and relations, end quote. To offer our listeners something to linger on after this episode, I'd appreciate it if you could expand on what it means to blur these boundaries and binaries of parts and wholes or local and global, and how that might influence how we think about our roles in creating a more just and healthier future. This idea that the global and the local are these bounded, different things that aren't connected or are connected in this very particular way where you've got all these little local bubbles and then they add up to the global. That's just not, that's not the right picture that we should be sort of thinking and acting with. I think that, you know, my backyard is the global and the global does show up on people's plates at dinner and that, you know, trying to separate out where we should act or even try to understand our actions according to these these preset scales just doesn't make sense i think and it's it's certainly not a hierarchical relationship right it's you know it's not a i'm all for local politics i love you know people digging in where they live i'm you know all about it but i don't see that as only affecting my local place right i see those those actions as part of a 
a connection and a way of building something that we might not have access to, again, sort of thinking with the noosphere, we might not know all of the ramifications of what we're doing, all of the echoes that will be shared across time and space. And I think just living with the uncertainty of scale is actually a really beautiful thing to just open yourself up as as a part of a much wider world that is not constrained by these sort of little these little isolated bubbles but that we're all partly connected in some way and and what we do will have effects that we cannot predict and cannot know i find that as hopeful as it is scary and i like to i like to lean into that hope What is an impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? Uh, I'm going to give two books. I'm going to cheat. One is Max Liberon's Pollution is Colonialism. And then the other is a book that isn't actually out yet. I had the privilege of working on it for Ideas on Fire, which is an editing company. And it's Hi'ile Hobart's Cooling the Tropics. It will be coming out this fall. Uh, It's a beautiful book. And so, yeah, two Thank you. Uh, What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I just go out into my backyard after work every day and spend some time just looking at the bugs and the weeds and listening to the birds. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? My biggest source of inspiration is looking to other generations, both the generations that have come before me and the generations that are coming after me, to get inspired by all the different ways that we can learn and change across time. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are wrapping up here. But again, Micah's book is An Ecology of Knowledges, and you can engage more deeply with Micah's work over at www.micahrader.com. This will, of course, always be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Micah, I really feel shifted in an embodied way after this conversation. And so I'm so grateful for your time and the wealth of knowledge that you shared with us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Stay curious and just always be, be open to where your curiosity will lead you to grow. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support 
or at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>